Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Brent Cooper. Brent describes himself as a political sociologist by training, mystic by nature, rebel by choice, and executive director of the Abstract Organization. Today's a somewhat unusual episode. Brent and I have tangled online numerous times, and he's denounced both me and Game B, what I consider intemperate and ill-informed ways. I'm sure he'd disagree. And we're not going to talk about those things today, at least not much, but I'd welcome you to go check them out in his Medium feed. Agree or disagree, he does a pretty good job of writing. It's at least clear, which is a good thing. I should also acknowledge that, as usual, as our regular listeners know, I did my 10 hours of research on Brent, read a bunch of his essays, branched from there to read some of the references in his essays. And I will say again, agree or disagree with him, he is a first-class researcher and a good writer. So I wanted to put that on the record before we got started. Oh, and I should also say, to be fair, in our tangles in the past, it hasn't all been him. I certainly fired back at him. I'm sure I've started some shit too. So with all that acknowledged, today, rather than fight some more, which I believe wouldn't be very illuminating. I mean, you know, we all see shit shows on the internet all the time. We're going to do something different. We're going to focus on things that we at least loosely agree upon. While we'll no doubt surface some details and approaches that aren't entirely congruent, and listeners know that I seldom agree in toto with my guests, and I'm sure we'll have some border skirmishes today, but the focus will be on exploring things together with a positive valence. Before we dive into our topics, first, something that you reference in a lot of your essays is that you come from a sociological perspective. You know, I took a sophomore level intro to sociology course almost half a century ago, oh my God. And it was, frankly, essentially a historical survey of Weber, Weber, whatever the fuck his name is, Durkheim, some of the others, some of the empirical sociologists, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Then the last third of the course was on survey research methods, and we did a little survey. We did some SPSS statistical analysis, et cetera. But I suspect that your methods are rather different than those. Maybe if you could tell our audience what a sociological perspective is, and specifically, what is your sociological perspective? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, uh, first of all. And I'll just note quickly, I mean, I don't denounce Game B completely. Uh, I try to acknowledge its merits in the opening of the essay and also do the same thing when I critique the intellectual dark web, which is a very adjacent context to the to the Game B thing. But yeah, I, I'm happy to not talk about that today, although I think it would also make for a very interesting conversation. As for sociological methodology, my undergrad is in international relations, which is very interdisciplinary, and, and it's, it's in many ways rooted in sociology in the contemporary sense, but uh, curiously, it's not a huge required component of the degree. So in my undergrad, I only took an intro to sociology class as well, and the, the core of the IR program is like political science, economics, languages are thrown in there. Um, a bit of philosophy, a bit of classical studies, and sociology is a part, but it wasn't a huge 
requirement. It's more history, political science, economics, global perspective and whatnot. But my master's degree was in political sociology. So I, I specialized in that particular subfield. And that focuses on the boundaries between politics and society, basically how those two overlap and mesh and conflict. And interestingly, in my degree, you know, I took a research methods class at the London School of Economics, and I found it to be very dated and flawed. The teacher was very old fashioned, and it included things like telephone surveys. And given that we're in the internet age, you know, there's just there's many different methods for collecting information. And, and in fact, I think surveys are quite a limited form, even though in the early days, that's what they depended on. So my methods, you know, try obviously try to use that research if it's available, but I'm not going to go out and do telephone surveys myself. It's very laborious. I do a lot of meta theory. I try to, I try to use whatever theories that I employ to really address the meta crisis, the root cause of a lot of the unfolding of these uh, social conflicts and birth pangs of a global civilization. So um, maybe that's all I'll say about that. We can go deeper if you have a follow-up question, but it's a, you know, sociological method is a, is a very big topic. And I, I guess in short, I'm still kind of humble before it, you know, because it's such a broad field. One of my big takeaways that I often lament to people is that uh, the, the public consciousness has much more literacy and uh, appreciation for psychology, right? There's, there's a, the 20th century is characterized by a lot of methodological individualism in the social sciences, and that paradigm has somewhat been overturned. And so we have a more relational approach, but in public discourse, you know, sociology is still pretty marginalized and underfunded. So I like to give that context to, to demonstrate that I think things are shifting, they should shift. And the 21st century has to develop a, a broad appreciation for this field. And so I try to advocate for it publicly as well. Yeah, interesting. Now that I think about it, I also do some work that one could, I suppose, say is at the edge of sociology. After this episode is recorded, but before it comes out, there'll be a, an episode I do with Josh Epstein, who's one of the founders of agent-based modeling. And I participated in, in fact, the last scientific meeting I participated in myself in person was in January this year on so-called inverse generative social science, the idea being using data and AI to establish automatically software to run agents and agent-based simulations to explore the possibilities of an emergent phenomena in alternative social formulations. Probably a very different methodology than the kind you use. I've been an agent-based modeler for 20 years, but now that I think about it, it at least touches on the field of emergent aggregate behavior of agents that are at least roughly psychological. Yeah, sounds good. That's yeah, a great literature. Listen to the Josh Epstein episode. I think you'll find it interesting. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll check it out. Anyway, one of the things I think we do agree on and find very, very important and interesting is the fact that we appear to be in a meta crisis that literally threatens the life of advanced civilization. Well, you can take some of Steven Pinker's point data and say, yeah, that's true. People like him, who seem to be a little on the Pollyannish side for my taste, if you step back a little bit, and look at the fact that we live in a civilization, which I and the Game B folks call Game A, with roots that go back at least 10,000 years, 
to what Daniel Quinn calls the invention of totalitarian agriculture and its will to convert the world totally to human use, and then eventually driven by game-theoretical imperatives. And when I say a game-theoretical imperative, let me give you an example, classic example, actually, World War II. If we, the U.S., don't get it first, i.e. the nuclear weapons, the Germans could, and we're fucked. So therefore, what would we do? Spend a vast sum of money, an amazingly large sum of money, to bring into creation a technology that has the capability of destroying humanity. Turned out it wasn't necessary. The Germans weren't actually working on it, but we were caught in a classic game theoretical trap. So here we are 10,000 years at the invention of agriculture, becoming ever more competitive, ever more driven by game theoretical imperatives to the point that we're fucked. The game B perspective basically says that we are on the verge of advanced civilizational collapse from at least four tendencies. One, our greed, weapons, and thirst for power have made us capable of destroying ourselves by force and intent. Second, we're developing technologies that are so powerful, think of things like CRISPR, other kinds of genetic engineering, advanced artificial intelligence that could end up destroying our civilization by accident. And of course, and this is the one that a lot of people are aware of, but maybe not in its totality, is that our pollutants and disregard for the fragility and limits of nature have made us capable of destroying the environment which supports life itself. As regular listeners to the show know, I've had a number of guests on from the regenerative ecology community. And again, between this recording and when it comes out, a new episode from Joe Brewer is going to come out. And while I'm not quite as pessimistic as Joe, he and Christian Wall and some others we've had on the show, Joe Edelman, amongst others, make the case pretty convincingly that we've probably already overrun the long-term sustainable capability of the earth. And we are blundering into areas of possibly truly destructive, positive feedback loops that could destroy advanced civilization. Then perhaps the newest one, or at least the newest one that we've become cognizant of, is that irresponsible and unthoughtful use of our new communications technologies have made us capable of destroying our ability to understand, to make sense of the world, to deal with these other high-powered risks. It's really quite a problem we've gotten ourselves into. Yeah, and I guess the operative word there is metacrisis, and that's a, a common attractor for us. You know, we're all deeply concerned about that. And and also destroying our understanding. Like it is an ep- epistemological problem. And, you know, this is actually part of my critique of Game B and the intellectual dark web, because on in some sense, they're kind of on the, the cutting edge that they presuppose to be. But they're not immune from spreading various bits of misinformation as well. And they're also very resistant to critique. Uh, uh, we're not going to go down this road, Brent. Remember, we're not going to be. No, 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 no. But you brought it up. You you, you mentioned Game B. These are your or metaphors. So I'm, I'm go- trying to skirt around it. But okay. there's things tangentially worth mentioning. So, so, you know, that's why we're talking to try to unpack these things a little bit and, and to work together. You mentioned, you know, your audience is largely scientific American. In my uh, Meta Convergence article, I reference a scientific American article that describes four converging crises, the pandemic, the U.S. political crisis, climate change, and economic depression. 
And there's a sense in which all of these things are baked in because of an unfolding meta crisis, which actually lots of people have had awareness about going back many decades. But in our, in our public discourse, especially in this past five years, it has continued to run away from us. You know, the, the people who are ostensibly aware of this stuff and have leadership positions have continued to play into game theory traps such that, you know, Hillary Clinton pursues a Pied Piper strategy to have Trump run and then he ends up beating her. And, you know, I, I feel the sociological perspective uh, through all that was and is maligned, you know, so, so we need to do a little bit better and lean into the fact that we have these epistemic conflicts and it actually makes us polarize. Something that you and your guests talk about, but there's still aspects within these communities that feed into the polarization. And for me, a case in point is one of your recent guests, uh, James Lindsay. You know, I think I think without going too deep into that, um, there's there's many people who have effectively you know critiqued him. And my point with this is that there's a lot of distance between these different circles, right? So if I list off some of the people I follow on Twitter who, who critique and debunk and try to engage James Lindsay, like uh, Chris Kavanaugh, you know, he's doing a, a podcast called Decoding the Gurus. There's not a lot, enough overlap between these spaces, right? Ted McCormick, a podcast called Embrace the Void, a guy named Sam Hoadley-Brill, these are very intelligent people, and because we miss those critiques, we end up platform people like James Lindsay, and he has a sort of polarizing message. I think he overcorrects with his critique. And so I'm trying to pinpoint how in our communities, in our discourses, there's many factors which reproduce the meta crisis. And I'll, I'll use a phrase that you used on a recent podcast I was listening to, which is kick the can down the road. So I think we converge on that point. It's a bad idea to kick the can down the road. We actually want to anticipate and solve problems as they emerge. Yep. Interesting. It's a good transition because I kind of wondered what was the root of why you and I and people around me are often sideways. And when I read you know, a bunch of your essays and thought about them some and what they meant as a pattern... And then also just the list of four items that you gave as, you know, at least the sign of the current meta crisis close in, the pandemic and U.S. political crisis, a light came on for me, which is that we are looking at different time scales and at different sizes of a search space. I would say myself and the rest of the Game B community are looking at a very large potential design space for what comes next. And we don't believe that we have the answers yet and that we're still searching. We've identified some of the problems. And I think the, the root one is how do we continue to cooperate at scale and with power and yet avoid game theoretical traps? It's a, a really hard problem. And how do we do it in everything from science to production to distribution to education? But we don't yet have answers that we're solid about. And we think that the search for these answers is going to take some time and a whole bunch of experimentation, and that the time for convergence is not yet there. You write quite a lot about convergence, and a lot of it quite good. In fact, you have an essay called Convergence for Consensus Building, a lot of detail on a proposed process for convergence that 
may have some merit, certainly worth a try. But my perspective is that at least at the scales that you talk about and are thinking about, the time for convergence is not yet come. We need to be exploratory. In my home academic field of evolutionary computation, we have the two terms exploration and exploitation. Try to get the Marxian loading of exploitation away when you hear those two terms, because it has nothing to do with that. The idea is that in a fitness landscape that's complicated and maybe changing, there are two ways to proceed. One is called exploitation, which is essentially hill climbing. Make small changes that move you up the hill. Exploration is when you look for other hills that may not even be connected by ridges that may be quite far away conceptually and require multiple changes simultaneously in a high-dimensional phase space to reach. And my view, and the view of many of the people in the Game B community, is that we are sufficiently fucked and we are on a sufficiently close to the top of a hill that it's time for looking far afield and multiple dimensions simultaneously to try to figure out what comes next, rather than looking at you know local small tweaks. You know, for instance, the pandemic. To my mind, on the scale of things, it's a relatively small issue. Trump, the shit show a bit bigger of an issue, but again, nothing on the scale of how do you figure out economics without game theoretical races to the bottom, which is a vastly much more difficult and longer term issue. Interestingly, at least my sense is that some of the times we get sideways is that we're not clearly delineating the timescales that we're talking about. I suspect we probably agree with each other on the short timescale things and maybe to a little bit lesser degree on the longer time scale things. But the Game B community is focused on the longer time scale things. Well, my sense is that you are principally focused on closer in, smaller steps, and believe that we know enough to move towards convergence rather than keeping the liminal space open while we explore for quite a while longer. That's very interesting because I think it's actually the inverse where I'm more inclined to agree with you and converge on the long term and we have disagreements about the short term. I do do a bit of work on the long term and of course I follow things like the Long Now Foundation for for many years and it's very important how we get there is critical and just a thing that came up uh, you know you mentioned the the pandemic again and you know in your 10 reforms, you advocate for universal health care too, right? So that's a policy point we converge on. And in terms of time scales, that's something I say that should already exist, right? It should already have done. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. Yeah. The reason it's not done, uh, there's many there's many reasons, but it's let's just say it's politicized. Well, it's the capture of politics by money. That's the fucking problem, right? Yeah. The fact that it's not done yet actually creates way more work and and uh, log jams in the systems when a thing like a pandemic happens right so so we have no political mechanisms in the moment to make that happen when it should have already existed and and ending the drug war as well and you know instituting some sort of UBI you know we really converge on these policies and when it comes to the short term, I think where we disagree is I'm more actively trying to advocate for these things through the political sphere. And, and um, you know, we, we have slightly different uh, applied political views, but many people in these mutual spaces we inhabit 
kind of the, they either don't want to debate politics or they eschew politics altogether and think that it's not a lever of change. And it's one of the many levers of change. And the election is a, a couple weeks away, right? So we're, we're really approaching this event horizon where it's very pivotal, even though you know Joe Biden is a, a suboptimal outcome. What that represents is uh, substantially an improvement from the sort of politics that, that Trump represents. So the sooner the better with these kinds of things. Like I get that there's a hesitance for radical change, and you think my convergence is a bit premature, and it's worth you know it's worth uh, exploring that together and hashing out because I think this decade in particular. Now we're into the first year of this decade. I think this decade is the kind of fundamental pivot and turning point and paradigm shift. And so, you know, we have a role to understand it, to facilitate it and to, you know, do harm reduction and minimize the the catastrophe because it may very well be too late for some aspects of climate change. But regardless of anthropogenic climate change, the planet can do its own thing and, and kick us off of it, you know. So bottom line of that whole narration is, we need to look at the long term and the short term together. And so I, I try to like sort of vacillate and oscillate between them and look at look at both. And, you know, one is humbled and has to embrace the reality checks. For example, when uh, Bernie was out of the primary both elections in a row, you know, you have to kind of swallow that loss and regroup and um, reapply the same energy and uh, policy values to changing the system because we're effectively running out of time. So I think the more we converge in the short term, the better. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, us Game B folks as individuals, many of us, including myself, are quite straightforward about what our short-term political agenda is. You know, I think Trump's a piece of shit. Let's say so right here. And everybody that's listening to this, don't vote for that motherfucker, right? He's the worst imaginable, he's not quite the worst imaginable president, but he's the worst president that we've ever had by far. And I sure to shit hope we never have one as bad again. And Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, any of the Democrats would have been vastly, vastly better than Trump. And let's sure to help hope we get that shit show ended and on to what comes next. And the difference between Bernie and Biden is way smaller than either of them and Trump in terms of the importance of starting to work on climate change, starting to work seriously about economic equality, starting to work seriously about what do we do about our communications ecosystems, et cetera. I mean, the light came on for me. I should have seen it earlier, but that first debate of Trump and Biden it just screamed at me that Trump is a pre-modern person. You know, he's a classic, you know, the kind of big man in the early days where we're going from our forager histories up to our, the bigger tribal days. He's just the kind of, you know, thuggish individual that would elbowed his way to power. He is not an enlightenment person. He doesn't even understand the enlightenment. He doesn't understand logic. He doesn't even understand what a lie is, right? He's, he's a very weird character and he's really fundamentally pre-modern. And the idea that we would have thrown up a pre-modern person as president of the United States in 2016 is just appalling at every level. So, you know, as an individual, I 100% agree with you. But as a movement, the Game B movement has for now, and as you know, I put you on the research mission of reading about our old Emancipation Party. We actually started out as a political movement, and we concluded that the time was not right 
that any of the moves available within political space were not big enough. And so we decided to fall back for a period of time to explore the design space at much higher distance and much higher dimensionality, and also to do experiments. This is critical to find out what does work to solve some of these problems and only then turn back as an organization towards the political. So at some point, obviously, you have to turn toward the political because the institutions do matter. But it's the choice we've made that for now, Game B as a movement, not to speak for the individuals, most of whom have political perspectives, is why we don't take sides in the political fights as a movement. Yeah, there's, you know, this relationship between abstract theory and concrete reality, and we have to go back and forth. And I think both of us are drawn towards the the high theory, for better or worse. But I think it's precisely because of my sociological background. And just in general, you know, I think a lot of us share a kind of left background. There's some there's some common threads there. But I saw a social movement emerging, which warranted real attention and engagement, right? It was a very historic and novel thing for Bernie Sanders to not only run for president, but to do as well as he did in both elections. And what we saw is, you know, something, again, you guys talk about a lot, the media ecology being so uh, poisoned and compromised what it comes down to is is a lot of the healthy discourse that was happening through that movement was was neglected or pushed aside or suppressed and so there's a deep irony there in kind of missing that opportunity and you know just very quickly uh James Lindsay who you had on uh on the podcast he he's bragging about voting for Trump on uh Twitter right so he's you know and and Helen Pluckrose who's his writing partner is kind of saying that she doesn't agree with that, but she's not going to like criticize him either. You know, it's just this kind of double move where she doesn't want to critique her friend, but she's saying that people actually should vote for Biden. So culturally, because of the anti-postmodern trend, which we, we both uh, know a lot about from different perspectives, it's created this... Um, sort of cultural confusion, p- political confusion, uh, despite the fact that it's trying to clarify some other areas. So, you know, like, pray to God that, you know, figuratively speaking, that that Biden gets in and there's a sort of, you know, saving democracy uh, aesthetic there that it's sort of achieved with just by getting Biden. But then that's when the real work begins, because we we are really running out of time, regardless of who's in power, you know, politics has become very defunct, dysfunctional because of money in politics, another point we agree with. And so rather than this is a, a fundamental disagreement I have with with uh, Game B and integral people, rather than you know bootstrap the individual and try to try to workshop and proliferate these sense making uh, strategies, that's part of it, but we really need to advocate for the systemic level change that invests in the public sector, invests in education, and expands access to those things. It may not be that the public sector is currently envisioned is actually the right way. And again, this is part of this bigger exploration that Game B is attempting. Uh, if we go to the essentially the principles of Game B, and we have more in the way of principles than we have with hard answers, so the four fundamentals are 
that we're looking for a future that's self-organizational, network-oriented, decentralized, and metastable for an extended period of time, meaning centuries. And, you know, focusing heavily on the nation state and the public sector and 18th century representative democracy, et cetera, as what comes next strikes us as probably not right. And that's why we do advocate for experimentation at smaller scales. In fact, the thing that's most pressurized now in the game bee space is the coming soon launch of multiple proto bees. Proto bees, you could think of as various operating systems that will actually be put in operation on the ground for initially small communities, but designed in such a way that if they're successful, they'll spread relatively rapidly by duplication and sometimes with mutation so that we will you know, soon have hundreds and then thousands of communities of people living via variations on the theme of a Game B operating system until we discover sums that actually work. And of course, that will also include fractal organizations at higher and higher levels amongst these so-called proto-Bs, which could vary in size from 25 people to 25,000 people. And the reason we're doing this is that we believe that while we have some insights in how to solve the problems we talked about above, we by no means have evidence that our ideas are sound, right? I proposed an idea called dividend money, for instance, which is a, a very different monetary system than the one we have today. On theoretical grounds, I believe it's sound. However, one of the things I learned from my last 20 years sojourn into complexity science is the ability to predict what will happen when you make a significant change in a complex system is relatively small. And so, again, I think a very important game B perspective is what we call epistemic modesty, that when we make a change, it's very difficult to predict for sure what it will do. You replace fractional reserve, central banker managed money with a much more egalitarian, much fairer, at least so I would argue, dividend money system probably will be good, but there may be some emergent complications that we can't foresee. So we better try it at a smaller scale before we try it on a larger. Same's true with another one of my pet hobby horses, liquid democracy, which I've written on a lot, probably written on that more than any other topic. Basically, liquid democracy, for those who don't know about it, is a delegative democracy. It's kind of a hybrid between direct democracy and representative democracy. If you want to, you can vote on every single issue that comes up for a vote, but that's not really practical for most people. They have neither the time nor the expertise. And so you can delegate your vote to somebody who you respect as knowing more than you do. So go up the knowledge gradient and you have values congruence with them. For instance, you might proxy your defense vote to your uncle who's a retired Air Force colonel, your environmental vote to the Sierra Club, and your gun rights vote to the NRA, right? And you can then produce patterns of representation, which are impossible to get in today's duopoly political system, where you're forced to sign on for a bucket of beliefs that you almost certainly don't agree with in toto. But anyway, liquid democracy, which I've written about a bunch, and particularly the essay introduction to liquid democracy on Medium has gotten a lot of attention. Probably a good idea, but again, we need to test it at this proto-B scale. And then if it works, multiple proto-Bs will try it. And then if it works, you know, at the level of a few hundred thousand people, maybe it's time to try it at the state, you know, U.S. state level, you know, five, 10 million people. If it works there, then try it at the nation state level. So I think that that is a fundamental difference in our perspective, which is, again, it's experimental, empirical. Let's take our theories and try them at smaller scales and build up from the bottom rather than say, hey, we have all the answers here. Let's seize power and drive it down from the top. Yeah. And 
I'll partly agree and, and partly disagree. You know, I'm, I'm trying to conduct my own experiments too, whether that's in the way I live and, and kind of, um, you know, generate my own value uh, or the way I do research and engage with people, right? So we're kind of conducting an experiment right here, right now. And the idea of consensus building, which which we touched on, but which is a much more complex process to unpack, you know, I'd love to do that in a, in a group setting and it, it requires a lot of support. But, um, you know, my point with that is that's an experiment that's not actually being tried. And so there's lots of things that aren't being tried and there's lots of things that are being tried that have been done in the past. And so sometimes it's it's redundant. And so we need to be even more reflexive and open to critique. So we're not experimenting too much. But I wanted to touch on, you mentioned dividend money. And I watched that video, I actually finished it this morning. And um, I've been researching uh, something called modern monetary theory for some time. And there was lots in your talk that seemed to appeal to me, right? And some of the the economics is over my head, so I have to acknowledge my limits there. But I also do, you know, this dynamic subordination idea and defer to the MMT experts, right? So you should have somebody like uh, my friend Andres Bernal on, who's who's an expert on these topics. And his takeaway to some of the assumptions built into your talk, like about how fractional reserve banking works, is that um, that it was actually wrong. And so I, I would just I would defer to him. But th- this is somewhere where you might have the right idea in your talk there, and you've done lots of research. But because of the nature of uh, you know free market think tanks and different conspiracy narratives, that the way those things infiltrate our discourse, and it, it happens to me too. I think we make uh, some mistakes in our premises about how money and politics actually work. And so, you know, um, one of the uh, chief proponents of modern monetary theory, Stephanie Kelton, was an advisor to Bernie Sanders. And I think um, in terms of campaigning, they didn't do enough maybe to to foreground this in the discourse and, and help change the media narrative around these things. And so it could have be- became uh, something that you would advocate for through that narrative instead of what you call dividend money. So in this sense, I think it's healthy to to problematize these things and, and branch out. And again, that's what we're doing. So I hope that um, there's a kind of a faster convergence to these ideas. Yeah, and it is frustrating that unfortunately, things like monetary systems are invisible to people. And it's apparently been common throughout history, that people take our monetary system as if it was brought down from Mount Sinai by Moses or something, when in reality, it's a series of frozen accidents. You know, the the critical one being the foundation of the Bank of England in 1694, when the King of England was short of money, and he basically sold the right to generate fractional reserve banking money to a group of investors. And that frozen accident ended up being successful and propagating and essentially is the root cause of why our system, at least a significant part of why our system is today. And there is plenty of room to explore. And I don't claim by any means that my dividend money is the end of the discussion. It's merely a stake in the ground for people to think about. And I am interested in modern monetary theory. And I read a fair amount about it, read a few books on the topic. 
By the way, I doubt there's anything too deeply wrong about my description of fractional reserve banking. I've read at least 50 books on the topic and a couple hundred scientific papers on it. So love to talk to anybody about it, but I'm pretty confident that I have my shit together on the mechanisms for how fractional reserve banking actually works. But anyway, exploring the space of how money Actually, and you step back up, money is only a means. It's a social signaling modality. What we're really talking about is the coordination of production and distribution. And so we should start with that. And then monetary systems are essentially a signaling mechanism to facilitate human collaboration for production and distribution. And there's been all kinds of odd and interesting experiments that we talked earlier in kind of a pre-show conversation a couple days ago about, you know, what are the good things that Nazis did, right? One of them was Schacht, who was the minister of finance. He eventually quit the Nazis in 1938 or 39 when he saw where they were actually headed. And even before their rearmament started, the Germans immediately got out of the depression via a technique that looks a lot like MMT. And as far as I know, still unique experiment in monetary theory where they essentially issued two separate monies in addition to the German mark. The most significant one was called MIFO bills, kind of difficult to explain, but you know, Google MIFO bills, Wikipedia, and it'll talk to you about how the shocked and early Nazi finance used a very expansionary form of additional money in parallel to the, the German mark. And it's plausible to argue that is how they were able to leap out of the Great Depression in one year when the rest of the world languished there for for many years. And the takeaway there is that, yes, we do need to explore these alternatives, but we also need to have epistemic modesty. I would say that modern monetary theory is not yet proven by any means. And I could give you a long list of issues that it may have. And it would be interesting to try it at a small scale and see what happened. But I would not say that it would make sense for the U.S. to go to MMT right now without a trial at a smaller scale. And I think that's the the biggest takeaway from all these things is there are many experiments which need to be run, but we must have epistemic modesty about how little we know about what emergences will occur should we make these kinds of changes. Yeah, and and we should add a layer of meta perspective if if we can to make sure that bad ideas don't slip in through that epistemic modesty because because that is a, a problem I, I see happening. And so I, I think we reached a good point with the MMT thing. I mean, it, there's only so far I can go with it as well. But I wanted to quickly touch on this this idea, Nazis did some good things, which, you know, in, in whatever examples you give, fine. You know, an, another example I could give would be, uh, you know, Heidegger is still widely popular and, and praised in various literatures, and he himself was a Nazi. And that is addressed in some places in very interesting ways. And I prefer to take that approach. But in some places, it's, it's just not addressed. It's not problematized. But the point I want to make is that by making such statements, it often can open the door to these neo-fascist or, or, or neo-Nazi type people. I mean, the neo, neo-Nazi term implies a much harsher visual aesthetic and stuff. There's much less of those people out there with you know swastikas on their forehead than people who hide these kinds of values and biases. So my concern is where the bad ideas get smuggled in, and a lot of us do it innocently. And so I guess I'm proposing a kind of meta-epistemic modesty just to avoid those even greater ills that that sneak in our biases. 
Yeah. Well, just to be clear, let me put it very clear. I'm in favor of killing fucking Nazis, right? (laughs) The fact that we bombed the shit out of them, flattened them, hung a whole bunch of them afterwards was a good fucking thing. And if neo-Nazis were to ever become anything other than a minor nuisance, which is about what they are today, I'd be in favor of killing them here too. God damn it, right? So don't take the fact that I am willing to go and look at, say, what the Nazis did and find some things that might be useful. Don't in any way think that I have any sympathy whatsoever for those cocksucking motherfuckers, right? I don't think I can say it more clearly than that. <laughs> it's, it, it's perfect. But let me see if I can add to that and pivot even even further to say that instead of saying the Nazis did good things, I'll, I'll say the Germans found a way to to summon a lot of economic power to build a military. And so did the US, right? So did the American empire. And so that potential for massive spending is there in both cases. And, the, and, and today we have to invert the military industrial complex and build a peace industrial complex. And this is a major thesis for me. I've also gathered a lot of research on this topic. It's There's just so much potential for that if we could just have that discussion more formally and more publicly. You know, and, and this is a major kind of inflection point for the paradigm shift too, you know. Again, the point is that countries, if they make the right moves, can summon economic power seemingly from nowhere and then it's a question of what you do with it. In the case of war, whether World War One or Two or the or the the Cold War and all the proxy wars, I've always found it very ironic that effectively what they're doing is putting the value that's you know taken from nature and 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 converted into capital, and then they're putting it into objects like tanks and jets and bombs, and then blowing it up. <laughs> it's kind of just like burning money, but they're doing it to achieve some political ends, and. You know, Steven Pinker, or I agree with you, you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, Pollyannish and, but, but he, you know, this general trend that society is getting better. Meanwhile, existential risks are increasing. We need to leverage the fact that society is getting better because people sort of universally agree underneath their differences that war is bad. And so we need to really lean into that and invest in that. Yeah, war is the worst thing humans ever invented, right? And it was a a very substantial negative up until 1910. And then our capacity reached the point where it became fucking disastrous. And our capacity has continued to increase to the point that if we ever have an all-out war again, it's the end of advanced civilization. You know, the podcast that we recently published, I'd referred people to called The Button, where we had former Secretary of Defense William Perry on and his co-author. And we talked about the fact that the nuclear sword of Damocles is still hold above our heads and that Trump can launch a nuclear attack with nobody say so. And they give a number of interesting reforms to reduce that danger. Very good analysis from a game theoretical perspective. Well, what's wrong with the U.S. current nuclear stance and the Russians as well? But yeah, I think that is one of the hopeful trends is that maybe finally, at least the advanced part of the world has realized that war is nothing but a fucking disaster, which we have to learn how to avoid. And that the kind of energy that has been used in wars in the past could be rechannelized, for instance, to rebuild a carbon-free economy. I've done some rough calculations And we could basically get to carbon neutral and actually carbon negative for considerably less at most. This is with very conservative assumptions. 
about the equivalent of two years of what the world's GDP percentage was allocated in World War II. So let's call it one third of a World War II, we could get to carbon neutrality. And that would be spread over about 60 years. So the level of intensity would be nothing at all like World War II. So we could be running at a 30th the burn rate of World War II and get to carbon neutrality by 2080, which would be in time. And that's just a very hopeful thing for me, if we can find the path to get there through our institutional structure. Yeah. And well, what comes to mind is the Green New Deal, if, if you want to talk about that briefly, because you opposed it for your reasons. And I advocate it from the point of view of sort of it's a minimum viable radicalism, if you will, as sort of to borrow your phrase, you know, regardless of what we call it, we sort of agree that, that that's a direction we should go. And that includes a, a jobs guarantee and just a, a massive shift, essentially, in, in policy and public consciousness. So how can we get there if you don't like the Green New Deal? I guess that's my question. Yeah, let me give you a point. I mean, again, this is kind of interesting. As you know, I actually worked for the Bernie campaign in 2016. I was the co-leader of our county, which we delivered in the face of a otherwise statewide landslide by Hillary. I was able to sell, we were able to sell, we had 250 volunteers, we were able to sell working class white people on Bernie. Virginia is a radically open primary state. We don't even have party registration here. And you can vote in either primary. So we had a lot of people come into our Bernie shop or people we met at shopping centers, et cetera, who said the only two people they're going to consider were Trump and Bernie. And I believe we did get a fair number of them to vote for Bernie instead. But I'll also be willing to say most of those ended up voting for Trump in the general because they sure to shit weren't going to vote for Hillary. Right. I will say I held my nose and voted for Hillary. I would say an awful lot of the people that Bernie resonated with in 2016 weren't going to vote for Hillary. Unfortunately for me, the Bernie of 2020 was not the Bernie of 2016. In fact, I actually signed up as a Bernie volunteer. Fortunately, somebody else stepped up to run the county operation. And I showed up to the first Bernie organizational meeting and was at least intended to support Bernie. But he did two things which really turned me off. First, he gave that speech where he labeled himself a socialist. I immediately knew he was toast. There's no way he's going to win a general election with the S word hung around his neck. And truthfully, that's not my issue. I mean, his form of democratic socialism isn't necessarily a bad thing. But the inability to explain that to American working class voters was a, just a complete tactical showstopper. But perhaps more important than on the substance and on the Green New Deal, the reason I mobilized for Bernie in 2016 was he was the only candidate that showed sufficient seriousness about climate change. Climate change is the one that is the most, probably the most serious, though, as you point out. Ma nature can fuck us in lots of ways. For instance, if we look at the history of what has brought civilizations down, volcanoes are a big one, right? We haven't had a big volcano anywhere in the world since 1815, since Tambora. And there are a lot bigger volcanic eruptions in the historical record than Tambora. And something like that could fuck us too, but not much we can do about that, frankly. But climate change is something we can do about. And I take it very seriously. And any politician who does foolish things around climate change does not deserve my support. And as you heard me quote before, on Facebook. I looked carefully and read Bernie's climate plan. And I just looked this morning. It's still there. I printed it out just to actually print it to a PDF. And here are some of the ridiculous things that he had in his Green New Deal. This is the one that caused me to say, fuck Bernie. Sorry, no way. The guy's either delusional or way worse. 
This is word for word, a quote. You can look it up at berniesanders.org. He proposes reaching 100% renewable energy for electricity and transportation no later than 2030. Fucking impossible, right? I know a lot about alternative energy. I've had many alternative energy technologists and climate scientists on my show. I talk to them. I talk to other ones all the time. They all agree that's an absurd and utterly impossible goal. In fact, I asked some of them, asked one of them in particular, the most knowledgeable about the base technologies. I said, could that be him signaling he wants to be a Stalinist? Could a Stalinist regime make that happen? And the guy said, nope. Even Stalin, with all his power, couldn't have done it. The only political leader that he can think of that could achieve 100% renewable energy for electricity and transportation by 2030 was Pol Pot. You know, if you kill off 20% of the population and reduce the size of the economy by 70%, yeah, maybe you could do it. But why the hell would somebody say something like that? Secondly, and again, this was another one of my objections, is that Bernie was advocating government ownership of all renewable energy. He was proposing what he called federal power marketing administrations. And essentially, he was saying that all of the renewable energy to be generated under the Green New Deal would be owned by the federal government, which would then have control over it and would have unbelievable ability to abuse people, right? You know, I'm a Madisonian. I believe that power corrupts and that blending business and politics is a dangerous aggregation of power. And to have the federal government, state socialism, own all the energy sector strikes me as a radically bad idea. And then just a a sub point, and this again shows the naivete of whoever put this plan together, direct quote, electricity will be sold at current rates to keep the cost of electricity stable during the transition. That may or may not be the right thing to do. In fact, I would argue it is not. Instead, we should have a gradually rising cost of electricity to send a signal throughout the system for people to figure out how to use electricity less. So again, naive thinking, a absolutely impossible claim, and a bad idea, which is state socialism for the energy sector, made me say, who the fuck is advising Bernie? These are bad ideas. Yeah, we can't go too deep into the details without a fact checker. But my argument to you was that he wasn't actually advocating full on state socialism. Uh, And I have a Politico article open here that says um, Sanders wants federally owned utilities to build massive amounts of wind and solar to compete with private generators. So there's counterpoints. And my point to you back in like February was that uh, we did need mediation and we needed to actually discuss these things to build understanding, not to have a debate and say, I'm right and you're wrong, but to actually figure out if there's a, a sort of epistemic conflict that doesn't need to be here. And I would agree like I, I'll, I'll rephrase what you said, that it's impossible. And I'll just say it's very ambitious. It's impossible. I mean, it, it, think about it this way. He says by 2030, he gets elected. He takes office. January 2021. Takes at least a year to get the legislation through. We're now talking January 20, 2022. We're talking eight years. It's nuts. There's no fucking way. Someone was delusional and stuff's still on his website. So let's assume that you're right for for these purposes. But what comes to mind for me is the UN uh, climate report that said basically we need to we need to have a collective plan in effect by 2030. So I think the type of ambitious plans that get presented and with the potential to fund them through things like MMT, I think you know 
it's not going to happen without really bold leadership and, and consensus building. It might be possible in, in some way if one of us is misreading it. And that um, the Green New Deal also comes from the UN, you know, 10 years prior in 2009 to the AOC and Ed Markey's introduction of the Green New Deal. So there's been a need and an awareness for that need for a global Green New Deal since then. And just you know, regardless of the flaws within the actual plan, you know, the broad meaning of it, of course, is is to combine the the social welfare investment of the New Deal with a green sort of plan. And and I think both of us would agree we don't want to greenwash. We don't want this to be a corporate controlled thing where it's like they're just greenwashing and pinkwashing and blackwashing to improve their brand image, but rather it, it, it's it's an authentic thing that only makes sense in a paradigm shift. So we have this kind of, you know, cart or horse first problem. But um, again, my premise is that this decade, one way or another, has to be indicative of building this um, systems transition. And it leads into these discourses of game being modernism, which are about a paradigm shift. Yep, indeed. And 2030 is exactly when we have to have the play fully called, right? We have to have done a lot of work and made a lot of investment between them, but we have to be realistic. And all you're going to do is, you know, remember these idiots whip inflation now, back in the 70s, Gerald Ford, before your time. These presidents would make these ridiculous statements, which were impossible. And then when it didn't happen, everyone got disillusioned and just ignored what they had to say. A couple other point critiques. Nowhere in the new Green Deal is there a carbon tax. And yet everyone who's looked at this carefully knows that the most powerful way to mobilize the creative energies of the human race is to announce a 50-year program of start out pretty high, moderately high, and then have a 20-year proposal to get carbon taxes up to a pretty high level on the order of $200 per ton of carbon. And then there's a formula which says these things only get cut once we get to carbon neutrality and only very slowly thereafter and only as to the degree that we actually have negative carbon capabilities. Green New People have ignored the large amount of research that shows that the carbon tax is the most practical and most powerful way to attack it. I also think it's, by the way, a mistake to blend getting to carbon neutrality with social welfare spending. Those are two very different things. And talk about capture, you end up getting a social welfare scheme captured, and the money goes to that rather than being invested efficiently by the human race to achieve this necessary goal of getting to carbon neutrality by 2060 or thereabouts. Now, of course, there will be a tremendous economic stimulus, which will be the equivalent of a social welfare program. But to make that the lead of the program is, to my mind, a huge mistake. The other mistake that the Dems make across the board, not just Bernie, is with one exception, I believe it was Buttigieg, they have all ruled out nuclear power as part of the program. Now, I'm with them that the current generation of hot water nuclear plants are not cost effective. They're too dangerous. Questions about waste disposal have not been sufficiently answered. But there's a tremendous amount of extraordinarily interesting and positive work in so-called fourth-gen nukes that would be much smaller, modular. They would just be buried in, you know, as a unit. They wouldn't have to have the fuel rods taken out, et cetera much less dangerous from a proliferation perspective, et cetera. And it's not clear, it's not proven that we'll get there with them, but it's looking very, very promising. 
And then just to say no nukes as part of your energy policy strikes me as, again, bending the knee to some ideologues rather than thinking logically about how do we get to carbon neutrality by 2060. Yeah, no disagreement there. I'm I'm for the next generation of, of nuclear power because it subverts those assumptions that nuclear power is dangerous or too expensive up front. Um, so I agree it should be part of a, a progressive platform. But it's not. You know, the Green New Deal is it's just not a good platform. And I would be happy to participate with if you could find a group of people. I know a lot about this stuff and I have access to some of the top's world's experts on both the technology and the science of climate change. And I'd love to craft a realistic plan for the human race to get there by 2060. And I would encourage you to see if you have some people who are willing to think and not just emote on the topic. Mm-hmm. You know, these topics are nested in very, you know, complex discourses that are in flux and they're competing. And there's many steps backwards occasionally. But, you know, another thing we agree on, like, you know, talking about Trump, it's also just the Republican Party is is pretty corrupt and backwards in terms of policy. No doubt about that. And that's why nobody should vote for any Republicans, right? Republicans are pre-modern idiots. I mean, anyone who could claim that anthropomorphic climate change is not happening and has potentially dangerous consequences should not be given any power over anything. Yeah, I think my point there is that um, there's a kind of gravitational pull of the political spectrum to the right and to the center. And so even though uh, a lot of people acknowledge what you just said, there's a lot of compromising in the center. And that's why the, the Democratic Party, with all the power that it still has, it's kind of shooting itself in the foot by making these compromises. So you know, the, the Green New Deal in, in the way that Ed Markey and AOC proposed it was actually not finalized. Now you're pointing to Bernie's platform, which is more concrete. But um, I think my point is that politically, that's the direction we should have headed in, even though your critiques uh, are granted that they're valid, right? That we could have um, converged under that direction rather than under Biden. But we'll see what happens. You know, we, we have a lot of work to do still. Yeah, I think Biden's a, a pragmatist, and if he surrounds himself with good people, they may be able to find their way to something that's much more realistic than the Green New Deal and not pre-modern and atavistic like a lot of the Republican ideas about climate. And let's see, where should we go to next? That was a fun discussion. I think it's just the kind I was hoping we'd have. We talked about exploration versus expectation. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about metamodernism. I read a fair amount of your stuff on metamodernism. I thought it was interesting, but I'm not entirely sure how relevant. And I would say that, as we talked about pregame, that you are a very good and careful scholar. You track references and references behind references, and you've teased apart various tendencies. However, I'm not 100% sure what the relevance to them is to thinking about metamodernism. Maybe you could put a little light on that. In fact, you have an essay called Mapping Metamodernism for Collective Intelligence, where you reference, and I'm quoting here, cosmodernism, ultramodernism, remodernism, digimodernism, performatism, hypermodernism, automodernism, renewalism, neomodernism, supermodernism, and transmodernism. And then you also say that metamodernism is an irreducible complex term emerging from them. Sounds like a bunch of intellectual pointy-headed shit to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Again, well, at some level, I'm attracted to theory. I'm frankly a pragmatist, an engineer, and a doer, more than I am a theorist. I can do light theory. I can understand theory. I can read all the theory you want, but I'm glad you did the work because I'm you know, probably something interesting in all that stuff. So tell me a little bit about, to your mind, where does metamodernism come from and what is it? Then I'll get my perspective on it. Yeah, that, that's a great setup. So in that essay, I know all those other terms, which they have value, but there's also something true in what you're saying about it just being, you know, the kind of proliferation of, of different signifiers. It doesn't help us. Um, but one of the sections, you know, I also say that postmodernism is irreducibly complex and that, and that it's still important and that we can't really understand metamodernism without understanding postmodernism. And also, it's a simplistic heuristic to say, you know, modernism plus or times postmodernism equals metamodernism or having arrows connecting them. There's something useful in that um, stage theory, but also that, you know, downsamples the complexity and we lose some of the truth in it. So, you know, in terms of postmodernism, I'll just refer to a book that I sent you, which is called The Postmodern Turn in the Social Sciences. It's over 500 words. It's encyclopedic. It's got endorsements from a slew of scholars. And it's just an excellent reference. You know, I, I go back to it often. And But what's curious about it, too, is it doesn't mention any of those other terms that I mentioned. And so I wanted to foreground that and then to introduce metamodernism. You know, it was popularized around 2010 by Vermeulen and Vandenacker, Dutch scholars working in London. And I think they did something uh, very novel, but it was also criticized at the time. And they formalized it in, a, in an edited volume in 2017. And that's the same year Hansi's first book came out. And there's, there's a lot in there, but what I discovered later over the years, also trying to just gather implicit sources about meta-theory, meta-analysis, and try to develop an original metamodernism, I found that some sources were missed and kind of buried. So then I could look at their approach and Hansi's approach and then kind of do a historical retcon and, and develop a more synthetic approach that includes all of these things and kind of comments on the fact that the 1990s missed a lot of this discourse and was also characterized by the waning of postmodernism at the same time. And so one of the operative words for me here is redundancy. We create an enormous amount of redundancy in, in pursuing all this research independently when in fact much of it dovetails and is convergent if we could just understand that. And so the idea, there's, there's the concrete ideas that like Hansi tries to formalize I think it's incredibly valuable, and it's been uh, quite a journey for me to be a part of his com community and circle of friends for four years. But I also always try to bring it back to a disambiguated sense. In the in the essay, I call it the the generativity of generic metamodernism, and that comes from just you know diving into the literature and understanding the historical moment we're in, also not simplifying it to this umbrella of metamodernism. Case in point, I recently pushed out my article on hypermodernism, and that's a kind of counterpoint to metamodernism that a lot of the, the discourse has missed. So my hope is to, you know, and this isn't something I can do on my own, but I try to foreground the complexity, the 30-year the narrative of these things and, and how they 
emerged in the um, at the end of the Cold War and how they reconverge on our present moment. And I mean, I've 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 said all that without even touching on uh, some of the specific points of these philosophies, because as I say, they're irreducibly complex, right? So if one goes into the the um, the citations of my article, as you as you have done, you you see that you just keep going down these rabbit holes potentially, and there's lots to get lost in. So you know, long story short. It's the emergence of sort of meta culture into the mainstream and the the salience of meta politics to imagine a prefigurative politics that that we can advocate for in the moment. And I try to tie it with um, a new metaphysics, if you will, or the the abolition of metaphysics, which is more in line with MMT, because one thing we agree on is that we've kind of passed the postmodern age. And there's the proliferation of these uh, alternative terms, which are only useful insofar as we actually kind of um, understand them and instantiate the work. So, you know, as I said to you before we recorded, like I loved your your conversations with Hanzi. And uh, I think we're just at the beginning of navigating the intersection of these discourses like Game B and metamodernism, for example. Um, because there's a lot, there's a lot out there. But effectively, what we're trying to do through better abstraction, which my my project is named after, is is distill information and and wisdom, if you will, and reduce the redundancy and the conflicts in our different processes. And so, all you know, despite the fact that uh, metamodernism is interesting, and we've uh, you know developed little little um, communities there's still so far to go in the responsible deployment of these concepts and, and how, how we educate with them and how we instrumentalize them ourselves. So I'll, I'll just end on the point that uh, I think the, the current culture war really missed the point over the past five years by focusing on postmodernism. And, you know, to some extent, I'll say that the, that the postmodernists that still exist also kind of missed the point. And so this is, you know, what makes it difficult, but also necessary to have the kind of outside perspective to, to parse those, uh, those conflicts and try to foster the, the reconciliation. Good. Hey, let me respond to that a little bit. Regular listeners know we've had several, three at least, metamodernist writers on the show. We've had Hansi Freinach on three times. We've had Tomas Bjorkman on, and most recently we had Lena Anderson on on her new book, Meta Modernity. And I've had very good conversations with them all. I've read all the books carefully and annotated them. And I guess I would say that all of them posit that meta modernism is a desirable what comes next on a path from pre modernism to modernism to post modernism and meta modernism. And this is where I've always pushed back. And those who've listened to those episodes know, predictably, that I'll push back on the fact that, to my mind, postmodernism is not of the same ilk of premodernism, modernism, and hopefully metamodernism. It's something else. In fact, it isn't one thing. And as I've been doing my research on what is postmodernism, I've deconstructed it into really five different things, which, while in some ways are congruent, in some ways are not congruent. First is it started out as an art movement, an aesthetic movement. In fact, 
playing back through my memories. I fortunately have an almost photographic memory, which is handy. The first time I heard the word postmodernism was in reference to the AT&T building in Manhattan around 1985. And it was kind of a new ironic style of architecture. Prior to that, most of the New York City skyscrapers were in the so-called international style, plain glass boxes. The AT&T building was significantly a plain glass box, but it had a Chippendale top, right? Kind of an ironic joke on ornamentation or bringing ornamentation back. And it was kind of cool. Architects liked it, et cetera. Then second, there's what I call the postmodern condition written about by first a guy named Leotard. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, a fresh writer. And the guy who I've recently gotten into has become quite a favorite in the game B world, Boudriar, in his talk about simulation levels. And this is this idea of people being abstracted away from the realities of life. You know, the simple example I use is, you know, people who don't know how to change the oil on their car or fix a toilet or, you know, how to butcher their own meat if they had to, et cetera. People who are living in this a series of abstractions within abstractions within abstractions and then reacting to the abstractions as if they were real. Bouillard's levels of simulation and simulacro, how the hell you pronounce that? And I would just say that's a bad thing. I think that part of what comes next, and I, I do sense that metamodernism is about this too, is to pull people out of this abstracted way of life and back towards a more real, more convivial, closer to the earth way of living. Next is Hansi talks about what he calls postmodern values. And frankly, I disagree with him on this. I mean, essentially his list of postmodern values is basically equality, liberty, and fraternity. And those are good old fashioned enlightenment values. And to the degree that there are some identifiable postmodern values, the one that strikes me the most is intellectual nihilism. The idea that there is no such thing as knowledge that all knowledge is equal, that you know, you're know you just as good to go to a witch doctor as you are to go to Johns Hopkins Hospital, et cetera. I realize that's a cartoon version of intellectual nihilism, but I have not been able to really extract anything very clear with respect to postmodern values. Next is what I'd call the postmodern stance. And this is one that people like Jim Lindsay are writing about, which is a radical anti-enlightenment perspective. These are people who claim to be academics, and yet they are claiming that anti-realism, anti-science, give up on the ability to incrementally approach truth. And heck, I'm a student of the sociology of science. I know science is by no means perfect. Not only does it make mistakes, even when it's properly carrying out the game of science, but also the game of science is corrupted by things like funding, career trajectories, credentialization, biased images on who is a scientist, etc. But science is a qualitatively different way of knowing over anything we've ever created before in the human race and is a very important part of our way forward. And this postmodern stance, trying to subvert and demote science to be equal to other methods of knowing, is to my mind insane. And then finally, what I would describe as the postmodern tools, things like deconstruction, skepticism about grand narratives, etc. And for fun, I looked into the evolution of critical legal studies from started in the 40s and continued on into the 70s and how it then and used some of these tools, but then got captured by the stance and metastasized into something like critical race theory, which is frankly not a theory at all, but rather an ideology. So I think when you talk about the problems and opportunities from postmodernism, 
just to say postmodernism is to include way too much in the bag when it really is important to decompose postmodernism into these various components and think about what parts of those, if any, ought to be brought forward into metamodernism and what parts ought to be thought as evolutionary dead ends. So that's sort of my take on postmodernism. And I don't know, I'm not quite sure why Hansi and Bjorkman and Anderson are so insistent on saying that we go from modernism to postmodernism to metamodernism. When it strikes me that it's much more fruitful to think of postmodernism as a modernist heresy and one that's hopefully a dead end, but which some insights that are useful come from, just as Marxist-Leninism is a modernist heresy. And yet there were some things in Marxist-Leninism that are useful and that we will no doubt repurpose as we go forward. And think of it as a, a three-part step. Pre-modernism, modernism, and metamodernism is, to my mind, a much more useful way to think. And think of postmodernism as a spur, a dead end off of modernism, from which there are some useful things to extract. Yeah, there's there's a fair bit of good stuff there. I think there's problems with all of these taxonomies. And um, so I try to, you know, pro- problematize the taxonomy itself, like that it's not simplistic. So I'm pretty forgiving with with Hansi's stage theory because a lot of it is outside my my domain and so I'm I'm just careful to warn people not to let that domain kind of colonize everything else because it reproduces the problems of the integral community where everybody just sees everybody in in stages and colors and kind of uses it to build hierarchies between them. I think the intellectual history of these things is far, far more complex. And, you know, I was kind of learning about these things a decade ago before they erupted so, so prominently into the culture war. And there's just such a mistranslation of it. And that's the real tragedy is these things are just more complex. And so, you know, to say it's a heresy or an aberration is to kind of throw the baby, throw the baby out with the bathwater and I would just say that, you know, postmodernism, as we agree, it's it's um, so multifaceted that you, you can't really distill it to a few things. And there, there's many ways to slice it. But as part of the education of intellectual history, we need to work through it and work through, you know, structuralism and post-structuralism and all the different authors. And they some associate with these terms, some eschew these labels altogether. And what's interesting I try to distill about it is the alternative discourses, you know, post postmodernism is another one that, that emerges in the, in the two thousands and these things all, as I'm seeing it, they necessarily have to uh, reach a sort of convergence point or epistemic singularity where at least in social sciences, there's a, a paradigm shift. So what I'm saying is demonizing postmodernism is is not a helpful thing or you know practice because it it really negates a lot of useful stuff and it's a kind of anti-intellectual knee-jerk reaction to do so when in fact these things are more complicated. Modernism itself is very is very complicated. And at the at the widest abstraction, you know, we could probably have a fun conversation about evolutionary globalization and uh, going back to the long term timescales, like what's going to happen over the the next hundred years. You know, a lot of these things are are going to get sorted out, but our job in this present moment, as best we can, is to to honor the complexity in these different terms, right? So when something like Marxism comes up and 
this is something, again, I've thought about for, for 10 years because I understood that it was it's useful. It's, it's a cornerstone of sociology in some sense, but it doesn't make any sense to become a political Marxist and have that be your whole orienting principle either. It's rather that all of these things need to fit into a whole and we need to understand all the toolkits and uh, how, how it can help us iterate uh, the, the cleanest version of a discourse. Yeah, or, or, and again, this would be the Jim Rutt, more pragmatic engineering perspective, is we should think about all these things as a collection of spare parts. While perhaps intellectually, metamodernism is irreducibly complex, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to dig into it. Maybe we'll do that on another show. At another level, metamodernism is a collection, or at least different people's forms of metamodernism, is a collection of ideas and techniques which can be read and understand and potentially borrowed and repurposed into what comes next. My own view, as I've repeated it multiple times on this episode with various emphases, is I very much doubt any of these theories per se is what comes next but rather attributes of them and learnings from them will provide raw material for experiment and social evolution using components borrowed from various of these tendencies will gradually converge towards a what comes next, which is actually very liberating for mankind and where we should all be headed. So I get much less interested in, I'm glad that you're doing it, it's useful somebody does it, but I'm much personally much less interested in trying to understand the deep nuances of these things as theory, because I don't think theory is really what's going to get us to the next level. Let's talk a little bit more about Hanzi's form of metamodernism. It's the one I know the best. I've read both of his books and spent many hours talking to him. I participate on his mailing list, et cetera. I've been involved in a couple of events he's sponsored, et cetera. And I do find it very interesting. I find his model of the effective value meme with a four-dimensional space of hierarchical complexity, essentially something kind of like actual realized IQ, plus or minus, code, which is the social operating system a person is running, their state, their subjective state of being, and the depth, which is essentially the range of states that they've experienced in some reasonable period of time. And, you know, a simple, and I'll admit, flattened version of Ponzi metamodernism is I take away that his design parameter is more or less utilitarianism of state. You simplify it down to the point that the main structure presents itself, and he seems to be advocating, and it seems to me not necessarily a bad idea, that the state of people, how we subjectively feel about ourselves, you know, is life good for us? Are we self-actualizing ourselves and becoming better humans is really what we should be doing. And we should do that through developing hierarchical complexity, though I think he and I both agree there's only a certain amount of that that you can do, but especially through crafting new code, new institutions, new ways of living to that end. Yeah. And it, it, it is very, there's something sublime about it, especially the two books put together. You know, the, the second one is much more sociologically oriented came second almost necessarily to help bridge this transition I, I speak of from psychology to sociology. And yeah, they they distill it down to things like meditation and having that in schools and prison and, and the abundant empirical evidence that things like that work. But they do so without fetishizing the individual, right? The individual is a relational individual in the system. And 
yeah, it's a it's a school of thought that that uh, we should all subscribe to, but also try to do what I do and you know historicize it and problematize it. And you know, I've been I've been lightly critical of the the fact that uh, both mainstream versions of metamodernism have a little bit of a white Eurocentric, uh, not a bias necessarily, but um, an aesthetic, right? So there's blind spots that other scholars have written about this too. Like it needs to be teased out. And there is actually a source, few sources for black metamodernism. And so, you know, this is something to keep in mind in the, whether in the background or the foreground of these discourses that there's, that there's other frames to shift in and out of in order to make Hanzi's theory even stronger. And again, I'd look at it as interesting as a theory but also interesting as a series of parts, which can be borrowed. And that's how I am approaching essentially all these various things. I mean, I have dug fairly deeply into regenerative ecology, for instance, and I don't buy that hook, line, and sinker by any means. On the other hand, some very, very important insights on how we live in balance with the earth. You know, I'm exploring other domains as well. And again, looking for them for piece parts to experiment with. And so I think that's the different way. It's, you know, you and I have a different place that we're coming from. You're a more formal academic researcher, and best I can tell, a pretty good one. I'm a builder and a doer looking for things I can reuse. One of the most underappreciated books is Brian Arthur's book on technology, where he makes the point very clearly that most of what we call technology is not really invention. It's what he calls innovation, where various already existing technologies are recombined in new and sometimes unexpected ways to produce new holes from a different configuration of the parts. Yeah, I, I want to push back a little bit just to say that, you know, I, I think part of Hanzi's performative move is to build a system that is supposed to be holistic, right? As if to say, well, you shouldn't dismantle my system and take what you want and cast aside what you don't want. Because there also might be things like, um, you know, you're critical of critical race theory, and that may very well be because it's not that useful to you personally. So there's a risk in trying to dismantle somebody else's system, especially if they've done it in a way that Hanzi does it, or the way I do it as well, is to be a bit self-effacing about it and to and to say like, you know, to be to be forthright what we're trying to do is build build a, a holistic system, but uh, obviously it's going to be flawed. It's going to be a bit um, tongue-in-cheek, a bit pataphysical, if you will, you know, playing with identity. And so in this regard, I would say, you know, don't cherry pick from Hansi's theory and appropriate things because it might, it might actually work against your own, your own values ultimately but um, rather see what we can do to reconstruct out of the bits. And clearly there's, there's many sources to, to gather tools from, m many toolkits. And so, yes, there's something good about drawing all that in, into a sort of hyper-pluralism and building something, but we just have to be careful. And it may be that there are an emergence in metamodernism and where the result is greater than the sum of the parts. And I continue to actively engage metamodernism and of all the ideas that I see out there, it's, I believe, furthest along. So it's worth attention and thinking, and maybe it can be nudged into a way that it is the basis for what comes next, or it may serve as a set of piece parts. And I think both are reasonable 
approaches in which you combine with regenerative ecology and you know, maybe even transhumanism to come up with something different. I think we, again, this is our, I think our fundamental viewpoint perspective, which after spending 10 hours reading your things, I concluded that myself in the Game B movement is looking further afield and is more pragmatically oriented to remix components from various points of view, trying to experiment our way to what comes next rather than trying to perfect one existing theory and get it right. Either of those could work. Time will tell. Well, I think we've, unfortunately, we only got through about two thirds of my topic list, which happens when I have interesting speakers on. We're at about our time mark here. So uh, give you a chance to make any final thoughts and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I wanted to thank you again. And, you know, like you said, many things uh, didn't come up. Uh, I hope we can keep talking and I'll give a, a a sort of an endorsement of you insofar as you're you're willing to on one end fight with me which is acceptable if if we're going somewhere with it right it doesn't end in blockages and on the other end we can actually get through that and work through that and that's important and i hope you know i wanted to make you look good here you wanted to make me look good i hope it kind of sends a message to to my haters and critics and uh cuz i i believe this is um like it, there's a multiplier effect. It's very fruitful. So, you know, there's certain people who just refuse to talk to me. And I've talked to some of these meta right folks. I talked to lots of leftists, of course. Um, and in the meta modern space, you know, I think it's very important that we keep the doors open to each other. And if we have a problem that we're very clear about it, we try to articulate it and and we and we work through it and and you've you've fulfilled those uh, positive uh, hopes and expectations for me so let this be a demonstration for all yeah and i would i would agree and i'd like to thank you for you know adhering to the premise that we agreed to when we did this that we were going to attempt to be constructive and friendly even though we acknowledge differences and even you know show some of the differences i think we did a great job of it You'd be amazed how many people, and I'm probably you can guess some of the names of people said, you got to be fucking nuts having Brent Cooper on your podcast. And I said, no, why wouldn't I, right? I think within the right ground rules, at least, we can have a very useful conversation. And as you pointed out, not only the conversation itself, but the meta signal that two people who are thought to be enemies, which I've never thought we were, by the way, can nonetheless have a high quality conversation. So thanks very much. And hey, maybe we'll do this again. Yeah, thanks. And I'll say just quickly, you know, you know, speaking is not my strong suit. These are very complex topics. And so I appreciate the opportunity to, to unpack things and for and for you to point to people to my articles, which are a more cogent representation of uh, my work. And if anyone has a problem with it, reach out to me. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.